0: Hello, and welcome to On The Marie Curie Couch, the podcast that aims to break down taboos and start open, honest conversations about death and dying. I'm Jason Davidson. I'm a social worker by profession, and I've worked in palliative care, hospice care, and bereavement support services for more than a decade. Each episode, we'll be speaking to a well-known guest, find out about how they feel about their own mortality and how their personal experience of bereavement has shaped the way they live their life. Today, I'm on the Marie Curie couch with Keo McClear. an award-winning writer and editor. Her books have been published in more than 25 countries and translated into 18 languages. Keo's work to date includes essays, novels and children's books as well as a graphic novel. She also lectures in creative writing. Keo holds a doctorate in environmental humanities. She was born in London and moved as a child to Toronto, Canada, where she still lives. Keo McClear, welcome to the Marie Curie Couch.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Could I stop do- today, Keel, by asking if you could tell me about a significant bereavement you've experienced in your life.
1: I would have to say it was the death of my father in 2018. I had been his primary caregiver for a number of years because he'd gone through a cancer diagnosis and then he was diagnosed with vascular dementia. And so it was a very kind of slow farewell in certain ways. But it was actually a really tender time we spent in the last year of his life together. And I mean, I knew that there were kind of forewarnings that he was kind of beginning to slip away. But I think that often we're in a kind of state of denial that that's happening. And so it still came as a complete surprise when he kind of reached the end. And then everything happened really rapidly. Um, And he actually died on Christmas in 2018. And I mean, I think what was significant for me about that was that I had never experienced that transition before. And I was able to be with him throughout it. I remember kind of staying with his body because it was christmas it was very difficult to get a doctor to come and to kind of sign the papers that were necessary to bring you know the people from the funeral home so i was with my father for quite a long time and um i mean i think that you don't shy away from the kind of stories around death and bereavement so i'm i mean i have to say that nothing that i had experienced before prepared me for it and yet i felt completely prepared I had gone through you know childbirth so i knew kind of somewhat about the transition at the other end of life in many ways it felt kind of similar in the sense that i felt like it was a very quiet moment it felt in some ways very solitary um and yet i felt kind of that it was an infinite moment and i'm not a religious person but i really felt that i mean in those moments after he kind of was pronounced dead um that i felt his presence still in the room and Um, And I felt it kind of slowly recede, but it wasn't the kind of sudden vanishing, it felt like very kind of gradual. And honestly, I think it was the most sacred moment I've ever experienced. And I experienced that. And then honestly, I thought that I could talk about death kind of fairly candidly afterwards. And then I stepped out of that room into the kind of normalcy of everyday life. And I found it almost impossible to talk about that moment and to talk about death. And I realized. Partly because I didn't grow up with a religious faith and I didn't have any kind of fixtures in my life to kind of process death. Like there was no ritual of grieving, there was no Kaddish, there was no Shiva. I didn't know where to go. And so what happened was I ended up going to a greenhouse in downtown Toronto for a series of Mondays um, because that was the day I had free. And I would leave all my responsibilities behind my teaching and my caregiving. I have two children. And I would go to this greenhouse and I'd sit in this kind of oasis of green. For a few hours and sometimes I draw and I realized that what I needed to do was kind of hide away with my grief. And even though it was a beautiful place, I felt almost ashamed that I was still grieving, even like even though it had only been a few weeks, um, I still felt that I was supposed to get on with things. There was a kind of weird pressure to kind of resume everyday life and I had to get back to my routines. And and I think that part of that was that I had this kind of hangover of shame for several weeks. And I decided that I would hide away and I would process my pain and my grief and I wouldn't let anyone see me until I was through that and then I'd kind of reappear which is such a crazy thing to do like it's not what I would advise and I'm sure as a social worker you wouldn't advise anybody to do this but it was feeling that I needed to do this alone and that once I was through it that I could reemerge. and I mean the lunacy of it was that I was actually in a public glass house doing this solo private grieving so it was completely absurd but I really felt that I needed to do that. And I kind of began to question why it is that we feel like we need to experience these things alone, why it's so difficult to have these conversations. Um, you know, I think I have some kind of, I can conjecture that there's certain reasons and pressures that exist within our society that have to do with productivity and kind of being upstanding and productive and being kind of on an individual mission all the time. And, and I think that maybe that mission-driven kind of culture makes it difficult to actually stop and experience something in its fullness. Anyway, that was my experience.
0: Thank you. And to talk about it, I mean, I'm just really struck by that feeling so alone with it. But it's a very, very common feeling. I mean, I, I'm just wondering whether there's, there's an element of It's yours because it's your grief because it was your relationship with your father. And so nobody else is going to have the experience you're having because they weren't you. With your dad. Um, And so there is something solitary, I think, about that. And, you know, we, we even hear from people who in relationships with a partner or with children or with other family members, everybody's having this different experience quite solitary experience and people will say well you know even even when i'm surrounded by 10 people who love me and care for me and they're asking me how i am and they're there for me in my grief i feel so alone
1: i think that's true i mean i think also minute by minute it changes like it really is a kind of uh extremely varied weather system i find with grief that one moment you'll want to talk about it and the next moment you just want somebody to sit with you and be you know In your presence, and maybe doing something completely distracting. So, I think that partly it's the kind of fickleness of grief that it's not static. And so, I think that's part of what makes it difficult. I mean, certainly, I grew up as an only child in a culture where I was encouraged to be very self reliant. So, I think I was also predisposed to be kind of alone with my grief. Um, I've always kind of been taught and kind of it's been ingrained in me that we kind of take care of our own kind of problems and. We don't really rely on other people. And that was kind of, unfortunately, something that kind of stuck with me, I think, in that moment, um, which is strange because I actually do think that we do much better in community. But in my own case, I was I, kind of viciously self reliant. But I think that what you're saying is true. Like, I do think that it is solitary and specific. And so that's what makes it kind of untranslatable at times. Like, everyone has parents and they're all going to die at a certain point, and that we share something in common. But the specificity of the loss is so difficult to express sometimes. I mean, I think where I found a lot of solace is in literature, um, certainly in music. I feel like that that can kind of capture the tone of grief in a way that sometimes kind of candid conversation, even with people that I know very well, can't. I was really struck actually thinking about literature. There's a, a really beautiful passage in Deborah Levy's, I think last book, it's part of her kind of series of memoirs where her mother has passed away. And she goes into a shop and I think people know that her mother's been sick. And instead of saying something, um, somebody kind of just reaches for her hand and kind of of squeezes it for a moment and then lets it go. And in that kind of momentary, like emotional transaction, she feels really seen. And I think sometimes it's as simple as that. It's not even that you need kind of lasting and consistent company in grief. It's just that you need the kind of acknowledgement from someone else, that you're experiencing something difficult and that you've had this loss. What
0: did the greenhouse give you?
1: Well, I mean, I think it's probably fairly cliche, but it gave me a sense of continuance, of life, of growth. I mean, a greenhouse is a very robust green place. You know, there's like, I mean, there were airplane wing-sized leaves and there were, you know, actually, what the room that I loved sitting in was the cactus room. It was like a desert. um, And I think partly what I liked and what I learned about cacti is that they often have these kind of scars on them and they'll grow around their scars. And the scars kind of are the markings of the passage of weather and time and the fact that they're still able to grow despite these scars and often create these like really elaborate ways of kind of growing around their scars felt really kind of beautiful to me. Um, It was also uh, the middle of the winter in Canada. So that room was really warm. And I found that one of the strange things that happened to me after my father died was that I couldn't get warm. I was constantly cold. It was like the thermostat in my body was kind of rearranged and broken. And so I was like constantly wearing kind of layers of clothes in the house. And so this greenhouse was also, you know, a wonderful place because it was so heated. Um, It was almost tropical. And I think that was also a comfort. And also just to be around other people, like experiencing their own stories. You know, there's something about the anonymity of a public space, like, you know, a museum or a library or a greenhouse where you're kind of in contact with people and there's a feeling of proximity. And you can kind of guess at what people are going through just by the expressions on their faces or the kind of the posture when they're sitting. And there's just a sense that we're kind of all very human. And often people go to these places alone. So um, that was also kind of a nice thing to experience, was a sense of solitariness, but in company, which I really liked.
0: I'm just interested to know, did you tell anyone in the greenhouse a stranger about the fact that your your father had died?
1: No, I didn't. I didn't talk about it really with, I mean, beyond my immediate circle, I really didn't talk about it. It's also, you know, I didn't experience it acutely, but I think there's also... In the early weeks of feeling of kind of magical thinking i didn't think my father was going to come back you know in material form but i felt like a conversation had been interrupted and i thought that we were going to pick up the thread at some point i kind of felt like i was waiting for something and so um i think i didn't want to talk about his death that much because i was still kind of in this waiting period you know my mother's buddhist and in buddhism there's a idea that the kind of soul ascends after i think 49 days um, and that during that time, it's a kind of bardo time where they're kind of, the spirits are still around. And I think that I had that feeling like for, for those first kind of few weeks that my father's spirit was still around.
0: I was going to ask that actually, I was just kind of, I, I was um, wondering if you'd had a, a sense of him in the greenhouse and how that manifested itself, but maybe, I don't know, did it?
1: It's funny because I'm I'm not generally a superstitious person, but There were a few odd things that happened after he died. And I know this will sound so crazy and hokey, but my father in the kind of last few months of his life, you know, the thing that really pleased him, and my father was a kind of towering intellect. He was a war reporter, foreign correspondent, extremely articulate, eloquent um, writer. And part of his vascular dementia was that he developed aphasia, which meant that he couldn't really speak very well or couldn't form thoughts into words. And so we would spend a lot of time watching nature documentaries, cat videos, because my father loved cat, and also music videos. And the band that he really loved was ABBA. Like he loved ABBA. So we would watch ABBA videos and listen to ABBA. And after he died, there were a series of days where I would walk into the, the convenience store or the grocery store, like a mall, and ABBA would be playing wherever I was after he died. And it was just like these little moments of synchrony, which just kind of felt kind of funny and playful. I also started seeing certain sequence of numbers over and over again. And, you know, these are just, I think, narrative things that happen, like maybe our mind plays tricks on us, but I kind of just took them. I mean, it, the number I kept on seeing was 444. And apparently, like in if you're kind of into astrology or that sequence of numbers means that kind of angels are watching over you. I mean, we choose to believe what we believe, but I just, I thought that was, I just chose to think of that as my father saying, hey, how are you? um and those little moments were really sweet and it kind of gave a sense of levity to the situation because it's like hard to get like really wound up and when you hear an Abba song (laughs) so you know if you hear dancing queen in a grocery store you're probably in, in a good space
0: they sound like really nice moments Two things you mentioned, and I think for people listening, one thing was you touched on that um, some of the potential physical symptoms of grief. So that actually, you know, uh, just to note, it it doesn't just affect us psychologically and emotionally or mood, but actually we can have physical symptoms as well from grief. Um, And what I wanted to ask was just going back to when your father was diagnosed and you knew that it was a cancer you said, as well as of course dementia, which I think it sounds like came later. Um were there any conversations at that time with him and from him about the future and death and dying? No. Okay.
1: I want to just go back to what you were saying about the physical manifestations for a second, because I do think there are somatic kind of experiences that we have when we have intense emotions and grief certainly is an intense emotion. And one of the best things that anyone told me after my father died, and I had a lot of people give me advice, was a friend who told me to get body work done. She said like something like shiatsu or gentle massage and maybe tell the practitioner that you've experienced a recent loss and that this is a really powerful way of kind of releasing some of the grief because some of it gets held in the body. And I have to say it was so profound and it was so beautiful. And a lot of the things that kind of had me kind of stuck and very rigid in my body for weeks after kind of were released. And I mean, I think that one does this with a sense of caution, knowing that you might end up crying on the massage table. But I think that that kind of body work can bypass a lot of things that we might find difficult to speak about. You know, that there's things that we to hold in our bodies that are maybe difficult to narrativize or to explain or to express in words. Um, but there's still kind of really material and very important and they can affect us really deeply. So, but what you were asking about my father and the conversation around death. My father never really talked about death and his own dying. Um there was a lot of taboo within my own family around death. I mean, it was so almost ridiculous. Like I remember growing up and you know, I'd have an uncle who would pass away in Japan. My mother's Japanese. And I would be told months later that he had died and only because I was about to leave and visit Japan and stay in the house of my uncle and my aunt. So I was—I would be told at that point that I wasn't to mention, you know, Jingo-san who had died like six months prior. So there was just a sense that it was always cloaked. It was never discussed openly. Um, you know, I have friends whose family members will talk about their cemetery plots, you know, and talk about the songs they want played at their service. And my parents, not in a million years, would have broached that with me. And so there was always this kind of sense of taboo. And even toward the end, I really don't think my father, I mean, partly maybe because of the dementia, could discuss it or could face it um, with any sense of kind of openness. And in that, like, I don't think I could have offered him solace if, you know, because he wouldn't have wanted to have that conversation. So I will say that one thing that happened toward the end was that he became very, I don't know if this is a kind of common thing, but he became very tidy in the last, day and hours of his life, I remember he was constantly pleading and kind of folding and pleading the bed sheet on top of him. And he kept on arranging things by his bedside. And my father had always been a very fastidious, tidy man, but I really felt like this was a different order of tidiness. And I really felt like he was kind of at least maybe subliminally kind of putting his affairs in order um, and just kind of tidying up. So, I think that even if he couldn't acknowledge that he was dying cognitively, you know, or even spiritually, there was something in him that knew what was happening.
0: I've heard that before, actually, about sort of folding sheets or tidying things. It's such a sort of big question, but I I was going to ask what your thoughts were about what sits behind the taboo, you know, not not just for your family, of course, there's, there's the kind of societal taboos around death. And so it's not just specific to your family, but I know for people listening, they will... You know, some people will have had similar experiences. So, growing up, then it was all very hush hush, and/or it just wasn't talked about. And so, what we know through our work, and you know, another aim of this podcast is, if we have conversations about death and dying, we can improve outcomes you know for those who are left behind and who are grieving for people who are dying if they know in advance they're living with a terminal illness we can get things documented about their care and what they want and what their wishes are the things they like and they don't like for the end you touched on this at the beginning of the conversation about birth and i mean how much planning goes into a birth um you know and yet we don't put that planning into death when we can. Of course you can't. There's something you can never plan for. But what are your thoughts on what sits behind that today?
1: Um, well, I think it's complicated. Um, you know, with my birth in both cases I had a doula. I had midwives and a doula, and a doula is a kind of birthing assistant and they hold a space for the birth. They hold a space for the birth, like literally the kind of physical fact of the birth, but also the emotional transition that occurs when you come into motherhood. And it's that holding a space um, that's really valuable. And I think, you know, there are death doulas who do this work as well. And I think that there's a kind of really beautiful facet to having that container and space be held for you by somebody else. Because frankly, I think it's counterculture. Uh, I think that under kind of the way our society is currently organized, certainly under capitalism, with this kind of pressure to be productive, that we are not allowed to fully step into our grief and lament, that there's a kind of time limit to how long we can take. Um, There's a kind of sense that we have to, um, you know, grieving beyond a certain point is pathological. And we know that from Freud, you know, and there are obviously unhealthy forms of grieving. But I think that there's a kind of pressure to kind of resume everyday life. I think, maybe this is more speculation, but I think we're a society that's extremely addicted to our distractions. And so I think in difficult moments, rather than sit with the heat and difficulty of what's happening and what's arising for us, we tend to bypass it by going to our devices or kind of engaging in whatever distractions are available because it's a lot easier to do that. And I mean, my experience with difficult emotions in my own family is certainly my father was, I mean, he was a beautiful man and so loving in many ways, but also a very repressed man, was that emotions that get tamped down don't go away. You know, he had grief in his early childhood that I saw arise again late in life, when all the kind of fortifications of his personality fell away, when, you know, all his professionalism, his career kind of fell away, and and he was experiencing dementia, and a lot of that armor that had kind of held his personhood together kind of fell away, a lot of that old and ancient grief came up. Like the death of his mother that he hadn't processed, abandonments in childhood, and it all came to the fore. And so I honestly think that we think we're doing ourselves a favor when we're distracting ourselves or bypassing the difficulty. We think it's easier, but I honestly don't think it goes away if we do it that way. And so I think it's really important to have these conversations. I don't think there's one way of doing grief, but I do think there need to be conversations. And I mean, I was reminded recently, I did an interview on stage with a friend who's just published a book. It's called There Is No Blue. And it's a kind of trilogy of essays about grief and particular deaths in her life, including the suicide of her sister. And it's a really beautiful, but also difficult book. And in one essay, she writes about making a death mask for her mother. Her mother's just died and she has an artist friend come over and they create a death mask. And I have to say, when I read that essay, I was completely stunned. I mean, I felt a bit shocked by it because I'd never heard of this being done in our contemporary age. I mean, I knew of like I'd seen Chopin's death mask in Majorca, you know, but that was like done in like 1850s or 18 whatever. And I knew that as a kind of ancient ritual that had been abandoned. And I think what really struck me in this essay was how close she got to touching death, like literally touching death. And to me, that was that's kind of taboo, is the idea that we touch death that closely. And she said to me, well, first of all, I think it made me question what we consider normal, because obviously in 1850, it was normal to create death masks. People did this. And so I think we sometimes mistake normal for what's natural and what's healthy. And I'm not sure that it's healthy and natural not to touch death. I'm not sure it's healthy and natural to make a death mask. I'm not sure. But the point is, is that our traditions and our proximity and our relationship to death changes and it's culturally determined. And I felt like when she wrote this essay and she did this, I was kind of shocked. And I said to her, like, I don't know where you got the nerve to do this. And, you know, it seems kind of beautiful. And the way you describe it is so um, wonderful. But like, how did you have the courage to do that? And she said that she got the courage from a poet named Sharon Olds, who you may know of. She was a very famous American poet who wrote a beautiful uh, kind of suite of poems about her father's death. And in one of the poems, she describes being so close to her father's dead body that she can smell the kind of alcohol emanating from his pores. And her father was an alcoholic, but she gets that close. And she said, it was in that description, in that moment of her being that close to death, that my friend felt permission to do the same. And so in that way, literature kind of broke the taboo for her about like how close one is allowed to get to death. And I mean, I I can't say that I would ever want to create a death mask. I find it kind of a bit chilling. Um, But for her, that was really important and healing process. And she really needed to do that and to have that tangible, palpable connection to her mother. So I don't know where I was going with this thought, but I mean, I do think it's interesting to question where our rituals come from and where our norms come from and, you know, and maybe to ask whether they can change, because I think there are some things that work right now for people, and there's things that don't work. Um, And so I think that this podcast is wonderful because it's kind of opening up a conversation that's kind of, you know, probably traveling the spectrum in terms of the way people approach these questions. But certainly I've rarely had these conversations. On Sunday, the 3rd of March, let's come
0: together for Marie Curie's fourth annual Day of Reflection. It's a special moment to remember everyone who died during the pandemic, We're encouraging everyone across the UK to take a moment to reflect and to share the name of a loved one they're remembering on the day. So let's acknowledge our grief, take time to reflect and remember, and support one another. To find out how you can get involved, visit dayofreflection.org.uk. Speaking of rituals, can I assume that um, there hadn't been conversations around funeral wishes with your dad? And or was there a kind of expectation of what might happen at a funeral? So, you know, some some people just know there's a kind of standard three things that might happen in the family whenever somebody dies. Or was that something you arranged as well for your dad?
1: That's a really good question. So actually, there was a note in his will that he wanted to have no service, no people. Uh, no public memorial. But what he wanted was to have those who were very close to him, and he named them. It was like myself, my mother, my sons, my husband. And he said, and perhaps his two half-brothers, one of whom lives in the UK and the other lives in Mallorca, and that he wanted to be cremated. And he wanted the ashes. It was very kind of um, almost, almost mythological, or there's something very kind of epic about the way he described it. He wanted the ashes to kind of scatter over the homes of those he loved or something. It was just very, I can't explain it. If you knew my father, you would understand that he had this very epic way of kind of expressing things. So anyway, we we had the service and then I had a. I did have a public memorial for him. I mean, I don't think it would be contrary to his wishes. It wasn't by the graveside, but we had a very public memorial where a lot of his former colleagues, Um, you know, he was a quite famous man in Canada. And so a lot of people wanted to come and respects it was a very beautiful and also lively and i think somewhat entertaining event there was music speeches and i think he would have. it was a good party at one of his favorite bistros in toronto and i think he would have appreciated it but again you know there was no there were no real instructions
0: and can i ask what did happen with the ashes
1: we buried his ashes okay. in the beautiful yeah. but in a beautiful place where i know that he would be very happy because it's full of like songbirds and trees and and i have to say that That's been a real surprise to me is how comforting I find cemeteries. I do feel, you know, that there's something incredibly beautiful about walking around a cemetery. My father's buried very close to Glenn Gould, who's a very famous um, Canadian pianist. And the grounds are just so beautiful. So I found that, like, because, you know, I think there is something very um, reassuring about being in a natural space where you can observe the seasons and have the sense that things are perennial. And that things will kind of fade but then they'll regenerate and there's something very comforting i find in going there
0: are you okay to share your father's name keel
1: his name is michael McClear.
0: thank you for talking about michael i want to kind of just shift the conversation a bit now if you're okay i wanted to ask if you thought about your own death
1: i mean i have done things like prepared things for my children So the kind of in the legal sense, I've definitely thought about it. Um, I don't know beyond that if that I have thought about it. I don't know how I'll feel when it if it if it is something that becomes kind of reality and I'm dealing with something that where I have to face my mortality because I recently lost my mother in law and she was in the prime of her life and died very suddenly. So there was no kind of facing death experience for her. It was just she had a heart attack suddenly and she died. Um, I've been a caregiver for two people at the end of their lives. Uh, My mother right now has went through cancer and is now in the kind of late stages of dementia um, and um, a heart condition. So I'm aware that sometimes death is very slow. And I think that my sons have been around this for long enough to be very kind of open and unfrightened by the idea that they lose people. It doesn't mean that it's easier but it means that they're kind of very willing in a way that I wasn't at their age to kind of have conversations about it. Um, And they're also very caring. And so I feel like what I do feel is that I'm in a community, in a family where we can have really candid conversations and we can talk about things. So I do feel in that way, maybe I prepared myself for that eventuality and maybe also prepared them for that eventuality. But saying that you're prepared doesn't mean that actually you're prepared. (laughs) That's that's my experience. It is one thing to be prepared, kind of logically or kind of theoretically, but it's a very different thing when it actually happens. I mean,
0: something we definitely encourages doing those practical things like you've mentioned you know in our work we provide support around writing wills making funeral plans any of those those practical things and I, i always say on this podcast you know i kind of do a bit of a shout out for that you know and kind of say to anybody listening you know if you haven't done some of those things Do you think about having that conversation with your family, partner, friends, whoever's around and sorting it out? Because actually, they're not the easiest things to do either, to write a will, because you do have to give it some thought and you have to give your death some thought. But actually, it's an act that you can carry out over the space of some a few hours or days however long it takes to get it arranged and signed and then it's done and then you put it in a drawer um and you can forget about it i was just thinking there when you were talking to you about um having conversations with children you mentioned your own children and how they um sound like they've been a bit more exposed to death and dying than you were when you were younger and do you think that exposure is important for children?
1: I do. Yeah, I absolutely do. I mean, I'm, the other um, work I do is I'm a writer. Um, I write books for adults, but I also write books for children. So I have almost 20 books for children. And some of them deal with kind of what would be considered kind of difficult or heavy subjects. Um, I've dealt with depression, for example, in a book I wrote called Virginia Woolf. Um, Wolf is spelled W-O-L-F it's published in the UK as well. And I think what I've realized from my own remembering my own childhood is that children have great capacity, um, that we underestimate them if we think that they're not able to kind of speak about death, that they'll be they will be thinking about it, whether or not we want to have those conversations. And generally, those kind of people who are afraid or feel that we need to protect children are really trying to protect themselves because children are already having these conversations with each other or they're kind of sneaking into libraries and reading books that might be kind of forbidden as I did, you know, and they're having, um, they have compelling questions about the world. You know, most children, um, you know, with rare exception have probably experienced a death, you know, whether it's the death of a companion animal or the death of a person in their family or an elder. Um, So I think that they're, they're there for the conversations if we're willing to have them with them, obviously in a child appropriate way, and I think there's actually great literature, and it's interesting how it varies cross culturally. Like I find in Europe, actually, there's been a lot more courage in talking about death in children's literature. Um, if you look up titles, there's a, a, a number of books that have won um, really kind of prestigious awards that deal with death very openly. And sometimes it's good to miniaturize it, like maybe a story about a, a bird that's found that's dead. You know, there's a really Beautiful book by Margaret Wise Brown, um, who's known for Goodnight Moon. Who who did a book I think it's called The Dead Bird, um, which is really beautiful because it talks about this kind of encounter with death that these children have, but also their kind of the ritual they create in order to mark this death and the burial that they have and the kind of ceremony they create. And I think it's that ability to actually have some agency that gives children a sense. Of uh, being able to cope and have power in that conversation, you know, allowing them to be part of the creating a ceremony, for example. Um, you know, another friend of mine in Toronto um, did a book called "The Funeral," which is also kind of a beautiful children's book. So it's like a it's about like funeral, but it's kind of about a funeral from a child's perspective. And like, you know, when you're a child, like you know that rolling hill by the funeral home is just like another extension of a playground. So you know, you might go in and you might mourn your uncle for a moment, but you also get distracted and you see that there's this kind of expanse of green grass and you want to roll down a hill. And so I think it's the ability to kind of hold life and death kind of intention without kind of resolving it and saying, well, life goes on, you know, in a pat way, which feels pretty insincere, I think, to most children even. But to say that, you know, we have joy and we also have sorrow and these things exist and we can handle it and we can handle it particularly when we're together handling it. Uh, I think that's been the kind of primary lesson I've learned from being a mother and also from my children because they're equally supportive. Like I found such comfort in their presence, you know, and in their barging in, like when I'm feeling grief stricken or sad about something, when they barge in with their demand for popcorn or like to see a movie, like there's ways of kind of widening your bandwidth you know like to be reminded that life goes on you know and that there are that everything will be interrupted um that there'll be positive interruptions and there'll be um painful interruptions in life that will be constantly interrupted
0: i love that and i think exposing children to death and dying and and i think the you know the, the sort of seeing a dead animal a bird or a spider or um you know and actually not just sort of um screaming and running away but actually taking the opportunity to have a conversation because i think as you just described it's not just helping them develop a basic understanding of death which they will go on to build on but actually it's helping develop an understanding of life
1: yeah absolutely
0: um um, Okay, I've got two questions I just wanted to ask before we finish. One was legacy and whether that was something that was important to you, you know, as in how you'd like to be remembered.
1: That's a really interesting question. I think the most beautiful expression of legacy that I've seen was after my mother-in-law died, um, and she died during COVID, so we couldn't really have a proper ceremony. Um, We had a virtual ceremony with about 300 people online. But afterwards, we decided to donate all her books to a library in a kind of lower income community center in Toronto. Um, And she was a real activist. Um, She was really involved in social justice issues and really cared, you know, she lived in a housing co-op and really cared about people who were struggling financially. And so this library houses all her books now. And what we did was we stamped her name kind of on the title page about all the books. So there's no physical monument to her. We haven't. We have her ashes at home. We haven't decided where well, they'll be buried yet. But there's this kind of scattered memorial to her. This legacy of all the books she read and cherished and loved that we've donated to this library. And now every time somebody borrows one of the books, they'll see her name inside of it. And so, you know, that to me is a beautiful expression of legacy. And I would love to be remembered that way.
0: Thank you. Um... Is there anything you wanted to say today when you were thinking about coming on this podcast that I haven't asked you?
1: I mean, maybe this is a question you can't answer, but I guess, do you feel like the conversation around grief and death and dying has shifted in any way in the kind of four years you've been doing this podcast?
0: I think through (laughs) my work, um, so, so working in palliative care, hospice care and bereavement care and having... Having sort of specialized certainly as a social worker in that field for about 15 years, I oh, it's a really it's a really tricky one to answer as well, because of course, the people I'm meeting in the environments I'm in, and we're supporting people to have those conversations, then there is more of an openness and also for me, I mean, I'm 52 year old, and so I grew up in the 70s and 80s. Um, but actually, I grew up in a household where conversations about death and dying were very open. And, you know, uh, spoke to Some others in my field of work and they had similar experiences and we've talked about maybe this is why we've ended up doing what we do. You know, I I can remember from a very, very young age, my mother talking to me about her experience of her father dying when she was 11. And she would tell me in kind of graphic detail about his sort of last moments and last breath. And, um, you know, I was tiny. (laughs) Um, and was fascinated and would always ask questions or I'd ask her to tell me the story again. And so that's a long-winded way, I suppose, of saying that I haven't noticed great change.
1: What you just described, though, says a lot to me because I think your curiosity, first of all, it says that your mother didn't underestimate you. She knew that you were capable of receiving this information. And your curiosity also probably demystify death a little bit right so um, rather than because I think what's scary to children is when it's a mystery when there's a sense that it's something we can't talk about I mean your imagination's always larger when there's like less information I find it's always a bit more frightening when you don't know things and so I think that that was a really smart thing for her to do and it makes sense to me that you ended up where you are right
0: yeah yeah absolutely um, just before we finish, Keo, can I ask how it's been today having this conversation and being on the Marie Curie couch?
1: Well, it's great. It's really wonderful. I mean, I have to say, like, I'm I'm not afraid of these conversations. I think they're really important conversations and they're really beautiful conversations, you know. And so thank you for inviting me. It's been such a pleasure.
0: Well, Keo McClear, thank you for being so honest and open and telling great stories today thank you for sharing some of Michael McClear's story and wonderful to meet you
1: wonderful to meet you too
0: so that's all for this episode of On the Marie Curie Couch we hope it's got you thinking about matters of life and death and perhaps starting those conversations with your own friends and family Marie Curie's here to help from planning ahead to coping with bereavement. You can talk through any concerns you have around the end of life with our support line team, which also includes specially trained nurses. Call us on 0800 090 2309 or search Marie Curie online. This podcast is produced and edited by Marie Curie with support from Ultimate Content. The music featured is Time Lapse by Pan Oceanic. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do like and subscribe. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye.